Looking for new threads? Well, we've got you covered at the Music Is Live podcast official merch store over at tpublic.com. Whether it's t-shirts, baseball tees, hoodies, coffee mugs, travel mugs, phone cases, or onesies for your infant rockers and metalheads, you can find everything you're looking for over at the Music Is Live podcast merch store at tpublic. Go to my link tree at l-i-n-k-a-t-r dot e-e forward slash Music Is Live podcast and get your merch today. Buy my stuff and thanks for your support. TerraNut is proud to offer you a natural nut bar chock full of healthy fats, minerals, and protein that meet your demands. Go to their website, www.terranut.com. You can order from them directly, and they will ship it to you. Use my coupon code, LUMAVS, and you will get a 25% discount on your first order. TerraNut Superfood Snacks, www.terranut.com. Don't forget to use coupon code, LUMAVS, at checkout. Fuel your life. You're listening to the Music Is Life podcast with your host, Lou Mabs, on the Rat Sound Review Network. podcast this is your host lou mavs check out everything you need to know about the show over at music is live podcast.com very happy to say i got my buddy and frequent co-host mr james Lilliquist in the house james how are you i'm great are you gonna do the uh, dramatic gopher sound or the young frankenstein no no <laughs> i'm not gonna do any trolling on you in honor of our special guests that we have today you and i are both really excited about this because we are both longtime fans of the one and only groucho marx ladies and gentlemen i first became aware of our guests when i was doing the google search on my favorite comedic group of all time the marx brothers to see if there were any revivals for any of their stage shows in that search i found out about this actor who when i first saw him 
I thought I was definitely looking at Julius Marks himself. He had been performing the role of Groucho in the play Groucho, A Life in Review, written by Groucho's son, Arthur, and depicting Groucho's life from the ages of 15 to 85. At the time, clips were available on YouTube, and I found myself taken away by his performance. Not only was he displaying the quick wit and rapid fire humor of the subject in question, but he also showed the heart of the man offstage. When an opportunity came to see him in Freeport, New York in the spring of 2014, my family and I went over to see him transform from his real self into Groucho Marx, and it felt like the spirit of Groucho took over him in those two hours that we spent, and he gave my family a wonderful time that we'll never forget. I'm proud to say that his performance of Groucho will be broadcast soon on PBS stations around the country in the month of April, and we are honored to have him as our guest today. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the one, the only, Mr. Frank Ferrante. Thank you, Lou. I appreciate it. And hello, James. Nice to be here with you both. This is one of my most enjoyable researches because not only did I get to watch March Brothers movies, but I also got to listen to some of your other interviews from other shows and got to hear some very interesting stories that I didn't even know about. The uh, my, my favorite one being the, I call it the Alice's Restaurant Semester at USC where you did the whole semester. It was like an abandoned church or something like that in the basement. Well, yeah, the show started uh, in, a, in a church hall. It wasn't abandoned, but it was a church uh, that my family went to. It's a parish that my family went to. And this was a uh, as you say, it started, uh, it was a senior project at USC, and the show is called An Evening with Groucho. They had a program called Directed Research, which meant you can create anything you wanted to create, any kind of work. But you did it in tandem with the with the, your mentor, with the professor. With, in this case, it was Bill White, Professor William White. And he said, Frank, you love the Marx Brothers. You're, you're a theater major. Why don't you combine your interest? And I had just seen a show about Groucho Marx, and I thought I could take that on. I thought it'd be a fun project. And so I received eight units to put this on. And so I, it was a tryout. I broke it in it, it, in my hometown of Sierra Madre at St. Rita's Church Hall. And so I had the whole community there to support me. I was selling tickets in makeup outside the church after mass. And that was the beginning. So I broke it in a church hall. And then that was summer of 84. And then spring of 85, I put it on at USC, the University of Southern California, where I was studying theater, and invited Groucho's family, Groucho's son Arthur, the playwright, Groucho's daughter Miriam, Maury Riskins, who co-wrote Animal Crackers and A Night at the Opera, did the screenplay for The Coconuts. They all showed up. So it all started uh, in a community fashion and, uh, and on a campus. And I have that, uh, that community to thank, and also, um, also USC. So that was the beginning, so I was, and I was discovered there uh, by Arthur Marx, uh, Groucho Marx's son, who was a playwright who had a play that he wanted to continue uh, touring around. And that was that was the beginning for me. And that was in 1985, if I'm correct. That's right. And he said to me, Frank, if I ever do a show about my father again, I'd like to use you. I graduated that year in May. And then within months, we were in Kansas City in a dinner theater. So my first job out of school in the fall of 85, was playing Groucho Marx from age 15 to 85 in the show that was just called Groucho at the time. And Gabe Kaplan had done a version of it years before. That was broadcast uh, in 1982. 
Yeah, I think it was on HBO. We did a version of it and we rewrote it and, you know, and, and did some nips and tucks and it evolved over, over all the weeks in Kansas City and then in rehearsals when we went to New York. The gentleman that owned that theater in Kansas City wanted to produce in New York. So they raised about half a million dollars. And here I was, 22 years old, playing my hero from age 15 to 85 in this incredible show that, as you said, has a lot of heart and humor. It's really well juxtaposed his private life and his professional life. And it really focuses on his relationship with Chico, who they're very different individuals, very contrasting. And that was really at the, at the core of that piece. And that was the beginning. The show opened in 86 off Broadway to Lucille Ortel and played for 254 performances. It was what they call the sleeper kind of hit of the year. It played for just under a year. It received awards and beautiful reviews. And it was mind-boggling, a very heady experience for a kid like me at the time. And that was the beginning. And it just kept snowballing from there. And so I had to work my way backwards because I had to figure out I need to be an actor still. And it got me into other roles. It got me into directing for the theater and producing in the theater and editing theatrical work. You, you figure out a lot in terms of survival when you're in the theater, but I was kind of thrust into it early on. And then you have to figure it out, which is what I continue to try to do. Since then, I can name off some of your accolades off the top of my head. You've done Neil Simon plays, including directing one of them. You do an improv character by the name of Caesar, which is who you have behind you. The Teatro Zanzani. After New York, we went to London and I did six months in London. And then I was doing other shows related to the character because that's really all I had experience with at that age at 23, 24. I productions and some of the best regional theaters in the country from the, did Animal Crackers, I did Coconuts off Broadway, but I didn't want to just do that. But it led to other, other interests. It led to other roles in, other, in the theater, including this uh, Teatro Zinzani show that you mentioned I've done for over 20 years. It's a very, where I played this Latin lover character, this, the Caesar. And that's, it's very improvisational, uh, as is uh, the one-man show that I currently tour with called An Evening with Groucho which is the show that Arthur saw me in at USC. So I started with An Evening with Groucho, did Arthur's play, Groucho, A Life and Review in New York and London. That was done, put on PBS in 2001. And I've done, I don't know, over 3,000 performances in that role in different vehicles, different shows. And I've done probably 2,000 performances as the Caesar in Teatro Zanzani in San Francisco, Seattle, Amsterdam. I opened the venue in Chicago and have played there twice and we'll go back again, I think within the year. It's a very immersive, interactive, it's a variety show, a very high-end, opulent, over-the-top variety show, a high-end with acts from all over the world and Tony Award winners as that uh, are featured, tumblers and acrobats and aerialists and great singers and jugglers, you name it, and I'm the host. And I do about a third, at least a third of the show. And it's, again, very interactive, as is my one-man show, An Evening with Groucho, which started as a student, which has just evolved over years. It's become much more interactive. About a third of that show is improvised. And I love that form. I like engaging in the, the interactive comedy form. It's become a, a real high for me and something that I continue to work on and nuance. It's joy. And then I've done other roles, like you said, and I've directed, I don't know, maybe a dozen Neil Simon plays at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, where the Marx Brothers played at Alsatia's Great Historic Theater. You played Pseudolus there. That's all that's I mean, Zero Marcel was always one of my favorite over the top grandiose actors. I mean, especially after seeing him in that and seeing him in the original version of Mel Brooks as the producers. He's one of the greatest. And what's beautiful about Zero Mostel, and I try to borrow from 
no matter how over the top he is, you believe him. He's so anchored in his truth, his madness, his desperation, his need. And I loved playing that role. I directed that one as well in Philadelphia, which is no easy task to, be, to play that lead role and then to direct a 20-something person musical, a Sondheim musical, and to sing it. There's a full orchestra and you've got you know, some of the best actors from New York and Philadelphia, character actors in that show. That also has, of course, a very vaudeville interactive, you know, it's designed, there are moments where you can play with the audience, not, not a lot, but you can do, certainly do takes and as I did and, and as Zero Mostel did. And uh, it's a vaudeville, uh, you know, people like Carl Ballantyne were in that show and Phil Silvers and Jack Guilford, who I met opening night in New York when I was a kid, who played Hysterium originally. I've been really fortunate. I've met some of my heroes like Hal Holbrook, who was and still is the king of the one person show, the historic solo show. Uh, he did Mark Twain tonight. There he is there. There we go. See yep. Poster. Nice panning, by the way. That was very good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No charge for that. <laughs> I'm non-union in this case. So are but, we. <laughs> yeah. What do you get for not rehearsing? You couldn't afford it. <laughs> you, go. you know, when I was studying or putting on the show, forming this one person show, I didn't know what a one person show was. I was 20 years old or so, or 19, 20 years old. And so I went around in L.A. County looking for every one person show that was out there. And there was a spate of them at the time in the mid 80s that were right at my beck and call, right at my front door. There was a Dorothy Parker one person show. The person who became my friend, Eddie Carroll, did a Jack Benny one man show, which was fantastic. We became good friends and worked together. I saw Jack Klugman play Lyndon B. Johnson in a one-person show, but it was Hal in 1984 when I was preparing for my show, who was just a granddaddy. I mean, he was just so there. It was so connected. It was the first time I went, oh, this is not an actor. This is a writer. This is Mark Twain. And I went backstage afterward to meet him. It was in Glendora at Citrus College, not too far from where I am now, about 15 minutes from where I am. He signed my poster and it was, I got to see him up close in the makeup and prosthetics, the whole deal. That was that. And then I read his book, Harold, which I think next to Moss Hart's book, Act One is one of the greatest, maybe the greatest showbiz book. Really a book that tells you what it's like to be in the trenches, how it all works, what it takes to put something together and continue to, to keep it going. And so I read this book, Harold, probably nine years ago or so. And I was so moved by it because it, it resonated. I related to his struggles and his journey and all those venues that he played around the country like I had, and trying to make people care and believe in what you're doing and loving your subject matter and wanting the audience to love that subject matter the way you do and playing outdoors and having people, you know, people who are distracted, trying to get their attention. And, and, you know, the fragmented existence that he had, that I've had, being away from your loved ones like he was with his children, like I have been, I felt kindred with him. And I was very moved by his story. And I said, I have to meet him. And so within a year, I put, sent a letter to the theater that he was going to perform in, and it got to him. And I saw his performance in the front row. He was in his late 80s at the time. This was in Santa Clarita, California. And it was this 88, 89-year-old man, 88-year-old man, just on stage for 90 minutes, never sits down. I think he leaned against the table one time. And it was spectacular, his stamina. And I relate to his stamina and force. You have to have that. You have to be crazy, as he said about the two of us. There's a bit of madness and desperation. You need desperate to do this. That's why we do it, to share this, these characters. And I went back afterward, and he said, I loved your letter, Frank. And I love what you said about the tradition of the theater. 
that was the beginning of our friendship, which lasted all the way up to his passing a year ago. I think today is his birthday, actually. That's well, perfect timing. Happy birthday, Hal Hal. Rest in peace. It's, yeah. So he passed away a year ago. I was at his 95th birthday. And so anyway, he comes to my show a year after I saw him the second time. I had the honor of introducing this man all these years later, probably it was like 30 whatever years after the fact. The audience went nuts for him and we came back and I had the same poster that he had signed in 1984. Now it's 2015. He wrote just beautiful things like, you know, Frank, you're an original. And then we became friends and I'd go over there and bring him flowers. We'd have lunch and I'd get to hear all of his great stories of his life and work. We had a really special relationship. I was just at his house and his assistant gave me some of the, some, some of his photos and uh, not a lot, just something as a, just as an acknowledgement of our connection, but it was very moving. I have his uh, handkerchief from uh, one of his handkerchiefs from the show that she gave me that I, that I uh, wear at times. So that's how it happened. I think you need mentors. You need people that see you and care about you to have someone say, you can do this. And one of the thing, well, the most important thing I think he said to me was uh, keep it going. Beautiful. In a letter he wrote me, keep it going. And I knew exactly what he meant because it's so hard to keep it going. And he also said to me, it was in the midst of this pandemic. And he said, even if you do your show only once a year, you have to do it. So you can say you've done it every year consecutively. So for <laughs> me, it's been 38 consecutive years. His was 62. So I'm shooting for 63. Don't remind me that my 38th birthday is coming up here soon. So <laughs> oh, well, there we go. We'll celebrate our anniversaries. So <laughs> growing up in Southern California, you know, being in Hollywood and everything like that, a lot of the actors there don't want to be in theater. What was your inspiration to go into theater than going into, say, music or movies or television or anything like that? That is predominantly what you would think of being in Southern California. Well, you know, that's another thing that Hal said. It's like, you know, you're a man of the theater. You love the theater. And Hal said, I'm a man of the theater. You're a man of the theater. That's what I've always loved. I've done it since I was a kid. I love the immediacy of it. I love being able to tell stories and the reaction, the, uh, the energy of an audience. There's nothing like it. So I never really thought about making movies or doing television. I wanted to work on the stage. I wanted to be in shows. I wanted to be in plays. You know, I didn't know what I was going to end up doing. You know, life keeps taking me there. And I keep saying yes to the opportunities, becoming a director. I had a teacher when I was in eighth grade who said, You're, you'd be a great director in eighth grade. And I ended up directing and directing a show that went on to be nominated for a Pulitzer. I'm not trying to brag. I'm just, uh, what I'm saying it's is- It's not bragging. Things. It's an accomplishment. Yeah. Be, please, accomplishment. you should be That's proud of it, really. <laughs> it's something that came about, but I think part of it has to do with people planting seats in, in, you know, with, with you. You, know, you, know, you. you need people around you who say, you're terrific. My grandma would say, uh, you're going to be like Bob Hope. One, you know, I, know, I never became Bob Hope. But I know what she meant. You're going to do things. You're going to work in your in comedy. You're going to make people laugh in your work. And it means a lot when you have people in your life that support you. And I still do. But to answer your question, James, uh, I got a taste of it in grammar school doing sketches, you know, in class. And I, it, it was like a lightning bolt right, went right here. It was a high. It took my breath away, the experience. And I always wanted to recapture that feeling of, you know, not you know, initially maybe acceptance, but really being a conductor. You know, when I'm up there doing a one-person show with musical accompaniment, it's an odd thing. I've been looking at the um, the, the films coming out of the show in, in April. We filmed it um, a couple of years back, and now it's rolling out on PBS. And so I've been, you know, I've been around it. It's been, you know, around the editing of it, the sound, the, uh, you know, the DVD, the doing the bonus feature. I mean, there's, I'm, I've just been immersed in the last days and weeks with the show more than usual uh, because um, 
it's coming, it's coming to fruition, the filmed version. And I look at it going, my gosh, the force it takes to stand up there and work a crowd. It's like, what the hell was I thinking? What am I doing? Why would anyone do this? It's, you know, even I was having that moment of like, this is insanity, but worth it, you know, and worth it because, you know, I've been working for, you know, I've, I've played over 500 cities. I always say this over 500 cities, 3000 performances, countries, you know, continents, and the experience of meeting people, of trying to entertain people and in different cultures, different parts of the country, whether it's the South, whether it's New York or Paducah or San Francisco or Altoona, or I did 50 towns in Australia with the Groucho character. I played the Caesar character in Amsterdam. Now, English is a second language, but still not an easy feat. But I, I was able to pull that off. But I guess my point is it's a, it's a joyful, mostly a joyful experience to meet you know, the cab drivers, now the Lyft drivers, the people that work at hotels, restaurants, bars, back people backstage at the theater, front of the theater, front of house. And I've got to meet so many interesting people, kind people. And I, I'm able to engage with people who tell me their life story. They tell me, you know, you sit there in a cab and you just have a conversation and then you feel connected to humanity. And sometimes those people become family surrogates because I needed that. I needed to feel that I was connected to, to humanity when I was on the road for sometimes weeks and months at a time. Sometimes there were just lots and lots of, uh, a great deal of one-nighters, which is, you know, wild. You, you show up the day before, you check into the hotel, you get up in the morning, you have your cup of coffee, your breakfast, you tech the show for a few hours, you do the performance at night, you do a meet and greet, you go have a, a snack and or drink, and then the next day you're gone and go to the next town and a lot of my life was like that for you know, 20 plus years. So when I get to do a sit down, uh, like with Teatro Zanzani, a six month run, or do a New York run like I did with Groucho A Life in Review or The Coconuts, that's also satisfying because you have consistency, you have structure to your life, you can make friends, you can have a world, you can have um, rituals, you can have those for the one-nighters too, but it's less adrenalized. And I've spent most of my existence adrenalized. I can't make a mistake. I've never knocked wood, never missed a show. I've never been late. Thousands of performances. I, I take it very seriously, of course, and, uh, as, as we do in the theater. And I feel very fortunate that I've been able to keep it going. And there's been ups and downs, but uh, there's been enough variety for me. The Groucho role has been a, uh, a through line and it's fun to return to it. The director is Drea Weber, who directed the film and the stage version the last 10 years she's done it. And she's upgraded the piece along the way and given it more brains and more uh, substance. She asked me a great question. What do you want to share about Groucho? What makes him who he is? Tell me more about him. And she wanted to know about his intellect and his relationship with writers and writing and the fact that he never made it past the sixth grade, that in a relationship, a correspondence with T.S. Eliot that he was so proud of, this kid that never made it past sixth grade, this came from a, a poor family that made it on his own. All of them did. I want to talk about that. I talk about the fact that, yes, it's a challenge to be on the road, but they really were challenged. They had no net. They were teenagers. They were poor. And it was life or death. There was no, cre there were no credit cards. No one's going to bail you out. We bail you out. And let that be a lesson to every one of you. That kind of stress actually makes a difference. I've been there. I know what it's like to think, I've got to kill this. I've got to nail it. It always leads to more. I've done tiny little jobs. A $5 job I once did in 1990 or 91, maybe 91, playing a 70-year-old German director. And I was like a kid. I was in my 20s who has a heart attack and dies in the middle of a scene. 
it was like a three minute scene or so. But someone saw me who remembered me from New York a few years prior. And that led to me directing Groucho Life and Review in Bellport, Long Island, the Gateway Playhouse. And then that led to Bernard Havard seeing me, who's from the Walnut Street Theater. I've worked there for almost 30 years. I've done probably 20 pieces there. Original work, Simon revivals, Groucho, musicals, farces, all that came from that $5 show. Milton Berle, the first great TV comedian at the Flyers Club, he said, Frank, do everything. And I said, well, I thought, well, that's not very discerning. And I thought, wait a minute, I get what he means. Say yes. Say yes as much as you can. And it's a good idea to say yes. Because those yeses usually add up to something. But I've got a lot of stories like that where it's like, why did I do this? I did a, a fundraiser benefit for a, a corral in uh, Woodland Hills doing the Groucho show. And, you know, I was moving the 10 foot grand, you know, half an hour before the show. I just was like, someone help me here. And I was angry. And I used that anger within the performance. This is like in 2001, 20 years ago. The corral opened and they did about 15 minutes prior to my 90 minute show. So it's hard to follow 20 minutes of corral music, you know, all these immense corral. I start in the audience. I start as myself and I enter as Frank and I become Groucho. And I was sitting in this particular audience fuming at the time. And by the time I got up there, I had a lot of angst. You know, I was raring to go. I was ready, ready to roar. And I killed it. It was like 400 people. It was a sold out house. And it was just had more of an edge than ever. And in the audience was a friend of the producer of Teatro Zinzani. His name was Stuart Gordon. People can look him up. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, a Reanimator. The Stuart Gordon? The Stuart Gordon. Reanimator is one of my favorite horror films ever. That's Stu. He just passed away a year ago or so. Great man. He called his friend, Norman Langell, who had this new Cirque show dinner theater in San Francisco and Seattle. It was a high-end, classy operation. It was a very elegant setting in a tent, in a Belgium Spiegel tent called a, well, that's what it's called, it's a Spiegel tent. And uh, you know, hand-carved wood, stained glass. You know, it was a beautiful, velvety, burgundy material, uh, fabric, and it was incredible. That low-paying little benefit that I did that made me so angry led to, I'm still doing it, 22 years later, 21 years later, and I made a very good living. If I just did that in my life, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. And I continued to do it. And I played this character, that character right there, who's kind of forever middle-aged. He's just on the ebb of his career. You know, he's just a, he's a puncher. And uh, he thinks he's all that. And the audience loves him, thankfully, for the most part. But that led to 20 plus years of employment. You know, who knows what's going to change your life? What person you meet, what conversation you have next to someone on an airplane. You know, I always start thinking about that. My tendency for many years was just to like, you know, to prop up against the window and sleep because that's sometimes that's the only sleep you get when you travel is on the plane. But I try now to really engage more in conversation when I can because you learn about people and you don't know what opportunities you know, will, will come up. And I don't mean that in a kind of a selfish way. I mean, just think about human interaction, you know, joy. You, you know, you, you meet people that, that need to have a conversation, that need to have a friend on that plane at that moment. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing when that happens. You mentioned before Groucho, A Life in Review was first broadcast on PBS back in 2001. And we're now in 2022 with the new evening with Groucho about to air on PBS in April. Why the 21 year wait? Well, you know, I had this great opportunity, Lou, in that a few years back, I was at the Cincinnati at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. It's a two time Tony Award winning theater. A uh, great place, great actors and, and work has come through that playhouse. 
And they booked me for seven weeks, which is unusual. Sometimes they get a, a longer run. I'm used to one-nighters, but in this case, they wanted me there for part of their season. And the set design, which I don't know if you've seen photos of it online, it was absolutely, it's stunning. It's a Broadway set. And I was there with the director, Drea Weber, and we, we thought we should, this should be filmed. If we're gonna film it anywhere, and normally I would just do it with a few furniture pieces, as you saw, lighting. I can play any kind of venue. I can play a 2000 seat state-of-the-art theater. I can play, a, I can be at a grammar school stage. I could be at an opera house. I could be at a, you know, at a, at a university setting. It doesn't matter. I can be in the round. I could be in the extreme thrust and scenario. But we had this beautiful set and we figured we should, we should take advantage of this. And so Drea set up a three camera shoot and she shot it over, we, over three or four performances. And she had a handheld camera, which was essential in a way. So she could be right on my shoulder going into the audience. You know, Groucho is fluid. The, the way I play him is very fluid. He's fluid mentally, he's fluid physically. And um, she was able to capture that kind of that fluidity, that interaction with an audience, the improv. And um, so she filmed it. And there was, you know, three camera angles, four performances. That's a lot of film. One of the camera people didn't turn their camera on at some point. So we did, we couldn't match up some of it uh, on a crucial day of performance. Uh, but that being said, it ended up sitting around for two, three years. And during the pandemic, we had nothing going on. I'm a stage performer and all my peers were wiped out. Some of them I still haven't worked over two years. It changed everything, all of us sitting around. There's no way to make money. People get collecting unemployment. People are going through the actress fund to get, you know, some kind of support with their insurance, medical insurance. It's brutal, still brutal. And we're not out of the woods, a lot of us, but um, we had this opportunity, Lou, to edit this piece. And that's what Drea did over months, meticulously. And so she sculpted this incredible, I think it's an amazing transfer of a of a, of a live show to film. And it's not easy to communicate a live show on film. Sometimes they're very flat, very, very presentational, proscenium setup. But because she was able to go on the stage and the, the stage was thrust so far out, she could be behind me. She could capture different angles that she would not have been able to capture in a more traditional setup. And to their credit, the Cincinnati Playhouse said, do it. And most theaters will not say, do it. And um, they let us do it. And so she did it. I edited this thing during the pandemic. I was over her shoulder for some of mostly the sound because the audience isn't mic'd, but I know the laughs so well after so many years and so many hundreds of performances. I know the, you know, that's music. Small laugh, big laugh, bigger laugh, resolve laugh, a couple chuckles here. I know exactly where they're gonna fall. And so I'm able to say, you know, I think we need to maybe help this laugh out here, enhance this, so that you had a real sense. Of, of the music, of the, the laughter of, of the piece, which is essential. Now, I was so happy that it's now preserved. I have this thing archived and that audiences that can't afford it or haven't seen it can now see it on PBS. So it's rolling out uh, this spring and April 1st and uh, it'll be, it's a four year deal. So a lot of uh, PBS stations will show it in April, May, and then they'll have the other stations will have the choice to put it on whenever they want. So that's how it came about out of necessity and really my desire not to let it die. It's really a strange thing to do a show every night and then it, 
it's up in the air. It's in the ethers. It's gone forever. Not like a movie. There's no royalty. There's no residual. It's just, that's it. And you can't show anyone. You just have that, as the director would say, Dre would say, you have the, we have this contract with the audience. This is it. We're, this is it. This is us. It's live. It's just, you know, just, just, this, just us in this room. And this is our experience. And it's a pretty kind of a sacred thing, bond. It's an odd thing. It's really, and having, you know, been in this pandemic, we also see how important it is for us to be together, that we need that energy. We need to be a tribe together. We need to be around the fire, see each other. You know, in Teatro Zanzani, it's literally in the round, six foot diameter, all this madness. You know, people are hanging above your head. There's, you know, juggling pins going around. I'm, I'm on, I'm dancing on tables and I'm doing, you know, donkey kicks on tables and it's, it's extremely immersive, but that is like, we're all together. This has been going on since the beginning of time, people in the middle telling the story and the community taking it in. Well, that's what we've missed for two years. Children, young people, you know, I've, I've kind of learned that it's not, maybe not important to go to live theater, to go to a ballet or symphony or a comedy, a concert or comedy show. And, and that's a strange thing that they don't know from, you know, hopefully that's going to change again. And people will always want to see live entertainment and see, want to see plays and musicals and so forth. But that's also the beauty of it is I got to preserve this show because it is, it's in the air afterward. I always loved my band director for the one thing of him when on our senior play, uh, he we went to Chicago and saw the Blue Man Group live. Mm -hmm. And it's a much very similar to your show where it's just, it's madness and everything's going around, audience participation, things yeah. are flying everywhere. And that is going to be one of those you know memories that are etched in my mind. So you say you so you say it goes out in the ether. I disagree only because the audience will always remember that. Well, that's that, it. They always think about it because for me, growing up in East Tennessee after moving from California, which was a heck of a culture shock. Um, out here, it's a lot more live performances. You know, we got the dinner shows of Pigeon Forge and all that stuff. Right. And, sure. And a lot of people. A lot of people look down on that saying, oh, no, that's not a thing. I'm like, no, these people are, you know, performing for 300, 400 people a night, three times a night. Right. And stuff like that. And you get to have that chance to build on those audiences. You get to make those memories. Dollywood always makes this thing called memories worth repeating. You want to keep going to these things. Well, uh, you have an excellent point. And uh, is that that's what we it is a shared moment. And it is a memory that's just a, that is shared amongst those 50 people or 2000 people. And there's a lot to be said for it. That is the point. But there comes, a, there came a time for me for, with this particular show that I figure I don't how long can I do it? I hope until I'm 90 to like Hal. And uh, it was, it became important for me to preserve. And, um, but I, but your point so well taken that it's, that's, I think that's the magic of it. The fact that we're crazy enough to want to do this, you know, for just a few and it has meaning and it resonates it's a beautiful thing worst case scenario you can always go back to doing the uh, old groucho bits of just being up there and having somebody feed you you know feed you punch lines i remember that story i think someone asked and this is after chico and harpa passed away they said are you ever going to bring back the marx brothers and he said no i'm up here answering stupid questions <laughs> well yeah I, well i was there for that you know i was i was 13 years old and my dad took me to see groucho live and in person in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel. And, um, you know, I witnessed that, and I love telling that story. It's like, Groucho, are you making any new Marx Brothers movies, was the question. 
And he took this long pause and goes, no, I'm answering stupid questions. And the audience, <laughs> audience, audience died, exploded. And most of that audience was, you know, under 25. It was college age, young people. It was incredible, 1976, September. And my dad took the day off of work to take me to see my hero. But yeah, he had, you know, a woman asked him, Groucho, what do you dream about? He looked at her and said, not you. It was, you know, it was, you know, it was sl- the mechanism had slowed, but he still was getting through with this humor. And um, he was amazing, you know, and still, still reading. I'm always amazed by him. You know, he, he, could, he could barely stroke red and he could barely speak, he could barely move. But he spoke to the, there was a, a host there and, and Groucho whispered to him and said, that said something, and the host said, Groucho wants you to know that he, you should all read Scoundrel Time by Lillian Hellman. He just finished reading it, which is about Nixon, uh, who he despised. And uh, someone asked him, no, I asked him, I said, uh, what do you, because I, I knew how he felt about him. It was one of the first questions. I said, Groucho, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about Nixon? He goes, I hate Nixon. Nixon ought to be in jail. And of course, everyone's, this is right there in 76, that young audience exploded with joy and um, but in my uh, 13 year old brain I thought well, how do you how do I rile up the old guy and get his um, isn't that funny that was my uh, thinking how do I get them all you know do, like I was before that benefit performance you know that kind of anger he's uh, he has he has that edge that has served him his whole life his indignation and his, um, his anger is a great part of his humor and a lot of comedians actually he had including, quick including wit he definitely had quick wit and he was never dirty. And I remember there was an old quote of Groucho's where he said, you know, it's easy to be dirty to try to get a laugh. It's a lot harder to be funny and not be dirty. And I can't think of that many comedians that have come in his wake that really kind of followed suit. And that's crazy for me to say, because I know that one of his closest friends before he passed was Alice Cooper. The rock star, him and Alice were great friends. And when people think Alice Cooper, they, you know, they think, welcome to my nightmare. James and I actually just reviewed the television special for Welcome to My Nightmare. I told him, I said, I wonder if he actually took influence from some of the MGM Marx Brothers films because of a lot of the choreography and, and the way the musical numbers were portrayed. To me, I would think Cooper probably borrowed from, in my opinion, the masters of musical comedy because those two first films they did for MGM, Night at the Opera and Day at the Races, you can't name me two funnier comedies with music in them. So I'm thinking he had to have been influenced by them and they were that close. Groucho and George Burns went to see Alice Cooper live. I think Burns is the one who turned to Groucho and said, Vaudeville, he's doing Vaudeville. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's the theatrics. See, basically everything's been done and they'd already done it and seen it all. Uh, Groucho and Benny and Burns. So when they saw someone like, Cooper, they appreciated his, you know, his theatrical style. And, and you know, this, these are people that have been on the same bill with Harry Houdini and John Philip Sousa, people like that, you know, all kinds of madness and, the, you know, extreme types of, of personalities and, and acts. So, you know, Alice Cooper. Some, some good, it, some bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like Swain's, rat, Swain's Rats and Cats. You hear about that one? Where, where the rats actually, the rats are the jockeys and the cats are the horses. That was an act in vaudeville, Swain's Rats and Cats. And uh, it, was a, it was a rat and cat act. You know, 
that there's a whole story there, but I don't want to know how it ended. <laughs> I always appreciate those type of com- uh, comedians that took a lot from Groucho, you know, the quick rapid fire punchlines, you know, like I always think like Carl Reiner or, you know, those type of guys that were, you know, out there just blasting jokes. We went after Ronnie Dangerfield, just coming out there, you know, you've got 15 minutes, you better make it the best you got. Cause you know, right. and it's, that's very vaudeville because you've got only that certain amount of time. You better go out there and do it, or you might not do it again. Right. And, you know, Henny Youngman, Ronnie Dangerfield, you know, different, you know, different styles, but that one liner bang, 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 you know, two of them are masterful. Rodney to me is like one of the best, if not the, the best in the form. I love Rodney. Dangerfield. Agreed. You know, and he had a persona to go along with it. Um, but no respect, man, is such a, what a great thing. Heck, you know, so you can get away with a lot when you have this kind of self-contempt and you're the, you're the underdog. It's great. That's great. I, I like to go down the, uh, the YouTube rabbit hole and, and watch Rodney and, and Joan Rivers is one of my favorite. I love Joan Rivers. She's in that same vein with that certain terms of the attack that she has. I love her so much. And, you know, I love Jeffrey Ross. There's so many great you know, there's so many funny people around now and, and who loved Groucho or influenced by Groucho. And, you know, he's in, he's in all their DNA and is certainly in mine now. And we've all adopted. We grew up loving him, a lot of us in our 40s, 50s and up. I can and- attest, though, having seen you perform, the way you transformed into Groucho, we forgot we were watching Frank Ferrante. Like, you became so into the character. The beautiful thing about your performance was that you had people of all ages. You had kids there as young as five. I was 33 when I saw you. You had people my age and younger. You had senior citizens there. And it's like for for one night, it, we got to see Groucho come to life. You captured everything so perfectly. The look, the mannerisms, the duck walk. Now what are we wasting time for? Hey, baby, let's go to bed. <laughs> I'm a nice girl. <laughs> now you know how I got this walk. the way you would put your cigar in your mouth for comedic effect and of course the quick wit you know i remember telling everybody at work that monday i said listen i know you're all gonna make fun of me you don't care about the marks brothers but i don't care you got to see this guy in performance one day you'll never see anything funnier and you can bring your whole family thank you um, i appreciate that a lot it means a lot to me because i've always felt that and i still feel i still feel that the show needs to work whether people know who groucho marx is or not and less and less know him if i'm playing seven weeks in cincinnati or 10 weeks in milwaukee which i've done that's a that's a people that are subscribing to a series of shows i'm one of those shows so they're not there because they are Groucho fans. They're there because they're theater fans. They're there because they want to go out and have a good time and have a bite to eat and get a drink and see a show. I have to make it work whether they know him or not. And as time goes by, you know, no one, you know, I have to give context to their famous foil, Margaret Dumont. So they don't think that I'm picking on, you know, just a, a female friend of his. They have to know that she embodies high society and wealth and privilege and the upper class. They don't know that. It's just, you know, and he's the outsider. He's the little guy pouting away. But who knows who Margaret Dumont is in that audience? You know, who knows who Groucho was? Sometimes, you know, if I do shorter runs, and if I do, like I was to play at the Pasadena Playhouse, I had sold out 700 seats for three or four shows, packed, and it's like a rock concert. I'll go to Philadelphia next month. It'll be packed. It depends. There's, it's all cyclical. People become aware of him because of books and shows like mine and the movies, certainly, first and foremost, on you, know, you see him on TCM, you can go on YouTube. 
there's a lot of discovery that's going on. I was in Seattle for three summers, I think 2012, 13, 14. It was great. And there was a young crowd showing up. They didn't, you know, I don't know if they'd ever seen him before or read about him and knew that he had a subversive style. But there was, I cannot believe that I'd lived long enough to see this type of resurgence, this kind of interest from young people. And I'd be out there, it would be young people on dates in their 20s. I kept thinking, was there some kind of discount given? All I knew is they were having a great time and they were young. And it's the first time I'd seen so many young people in attendance at, at any show, because mostly the theater crowd is a 50 and up crowd traditionally always, it has been for decades. People can afford to go, people who've been weaned on it uh, and you know, learned from their own families, that's, this is a good thing to do, let's go see a show. It's a, it's a privilege, it's a joy, let's go see. You know, music man or whatever. I think for me, what really hits home, why I love the Marx Brothers so much, I mean, I was about four or five years old when I first saw Duck Soup. But believe it or not, my favorite Marx Brothers film, James, I don't know if you know this or not, is Monkey Business. As crazy really? as it is, because <laughs> that film is so zany, off the wall, anarchic, I can't stop laughing, especially yeah, yeah. the scenes with Harpo, you know, when he's doing the Punch and Judy puppet show and when the gentleman has a sore throat and... <laughs> He's telling the uh, barber, I got a frog in my throat and Harpo really thinks he's swallowed the frog and he's turning him over. But for me, why it's historically significant is because Coconuts and Animal Crackers were both shot in Astoria, Queens. I'm from Astoria, Queens, originally born and bred. The fact that they shot both those films in what is now known as Kaufman Astoria Studios uh -huh. in Long Island City. It's New York history, but I also feel like it's kind of my history and it's why I kind of felt this kinship with them. Having to say that I've, I've seen all the films and, you know, and, and I'm still always searching for new content about Groucho just because I just felt like he was like one of the more compelling figures of that bygone era. Yeah. And growing up, you were able to watch his films on networks like Fox or WWOR. Then yeah, it got moved to PBS in the 90s. And now the only place you can find them is on TCM unless you purchase the physical media from them mm -hmm. on like Amazon or wherever you could find it. It's beautiful that you're keeping it alive because I, I would never want this th that era of comedy and film to go away, you know? And that's the thing I'm always afraid of because the main way people get their content now is by streaming. And unfortunately, streaming only leaves room for, you know, dare I say it, you know, like Marvel Cinematic Universe type things. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, I mean, it just doesn't leave room for some of the classic films, you know, the, the Marx Brothers films, the Abbott and Costello films, the Thin Man film series, yeah, you know, like and people say, oh, black and white is boring. Well, no, it, no. it's pay attention to the story, watch the acting and realize you're seeing history. Right there. And if you if you let go of it, people will forget about it. It'll never come back. You doing it is great for all of us that remember when we were younger, but didn't get to see it as it was going on. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate what you're saying, Lou, very much. And I have to say, uh, in a way, I'm lucky because I was one of the younger ones that was around when he was still alive. I was, you know, I was one of those kids that saw his renaissance in the early 70s. I was nine, 10, 11. And so you know, any younger, no one has a memory of Groucho on the planet. I'm one of the last people. Now I'm in my late 50s. You look I, great. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, I've got to deal with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Stop that. Silly.
You know what it is? I get to do what I love to do. I've, I always feel like, and I feel like a kid, when you do what you want to do, no matter what profession it is, it, you know, it, it affects, I think, everything. The way you look, the way you move, the way you think. And uh, I've always loved what I've done. So, and I've always been grateful uh, that I got to do it. But, you know, back to like perpetuating it, which was another reason I'm so happy it's going to be aired. And it'll be first on PBS, then it'll be streamed elsewhere and it'll be fun. The DVD has a fun bonus feature with it, about 23 minute uh, interview with, with uh, yours truly and the director, Drea Weber. And so some good insight on, on the making of that Robert Bader. He's probably the number one person in terms of keeping the Marxes going. He did the DVD collection on You Bet Your Life. He's got a documentary coming out on uh, Cabot and Groucho. Uh, he's written, he wrote, he did the, 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 the book on Groucho's uh, articles, news, you know, all of his magazine pieces and newspaper pieces. So he has a lot to do with it. So he's just a couple years older than I am. But I will say there's a, there, so when he passed away, I was 14, I cried. Now, if you talk to anyone around my age or four, you know, from 10 to like 15, 16, a lot of us cried. Bader cried. This opera singer, a friend of mine, who was 10 when he passed. He cried, you know, that's the kind of, it sounds corny, but that's the kind of impact. You love him the way I love him. He gets into you. He becomes alter ego. He becomes armor. He lets you see the world differently. He gives us a lot. He's fearless. He plays by his own rules. It's all the things you want when you're a kid and a human. And that character seemed to have figured it out in those movies. He's fascinating is the concoction. It's a complex character that he's come up with actually he could be light and fey and he could be dour and deadpan and he could be falsetto to bass you know he had a great he had so many tools as a range yeah as a performer physically vocally and he was well read you know he cared about uh, reading he cared about his intellect he loved words and uh, as you know loved writers it's evident in his work someone gave me all of his radio shows uh from you bet your life and I had a long drive and I listened to a ton of them. It was like listening to someone today. You go, oh my God, he's that, he feels that current and that fluid. He's just as relevant. He's just as fresh now because of his big brain. And he was doing that material 70 years ago. Incredible. You're right though. He, he's what we wish we could say to the elitist snobs. His son, Arthur told me, and I read that too, that he'd uh, kept, a, you know, he kept a dictionary in his glove compartment. I have his encyclopedia here. I have one of his dictionaries from the early 70s. He loved language. For a lot of us, being introduced to Groucho meant being introduced to comedy writing, the performing arts, different lands, New York City for us who grew up in small towns. And, uh, that was a thrill, reading a Harpo Speaks. That's one of the great books. Uh, learning, you know, And reading about growing up in, in New York City and turn of the last century. It becomes a gateway to so many other enjoyable pastimes and obsessions, let's be honest. And that's really Groucho. And reading, you know, I wanted to, I read because of my interest in Groucho. I wanted to see, I wanted to learn about other comedians because of Groucho. One of the first books I read was by Steve Allen, written in the 1950s called The Funny Men. And it was great to see short chapters, very digestible for a kid like I, you know, like for a young kid. And you'd read about, you know, Groucho and Benny and folks of that ilk. I was introduced to the Marx Brothers because I was into sports and everything. And my stepfather at the time, who just passed last year from cancer, he always wanted me to read. He was always a reader. My mom was always a reader. And I just was, I just could not sit down long enough to, to read. And he's like, here, we're going to watch this movie. And it was Bull Feathers. Correction, he meant Horse Feathers. And then immediately after that, he 
gave me Hunter S. Thompson's Better Than Sex because it was a little bit more easier <laughs> digestible than that, which can explain a lot about me that um, I that my brain goes that way that I can digest and understand Hunter S. Thompson. That um, right. <laughs> that got me into reading and that got me into thought and everything that mm-hmm. I moved towards, which was more tech and being in the military and all that stuff, it, it, learning how to get people motivated, how to challenge somebody properly. And how to get them to move to the peak. That's a really interesting thing that you said about that Marx is like kind of the the way to facilitate other mediums. Absolutely. I I had my own library. I kept my own library. I had my own Dewey Decimal System. And I would make up my own cards because I loved my books so much. And they were all there. And I loved reading Vonnegut. And um, I remember Woody Allen, Without Feathers. All that was like thrilling. Ray Bradbury. Then, you you know, you go there and Rod Serling. And it's wonderful. You know, it all it's, uh, has a domino effect. You know, they, he was a great artist, uh, Groucho, and that's what great artists do. They, they inspire, don't they? I think. He's an original. Not many people can make that claim, and he's, but he's one who, who can. It's great. It's, uh, it's useful to study people like that and then find your own, make it your own. Greatest compliment I ever got was, uh, Frank, you've got one foot in yesterday and one foot in today, and you make it all your own. And that made me feel great because that's what I'm trying to do. It's not my desire to just imitate. I'm not, I don't even think I'm an imitator by nature. You know, I'm, the, the show I do really is, I think, more of a, a filtering. And a, uh, it's my own fantasy of what it would have been like to experience him live with the hindsight of his 86 years plus of, of life. So I'm doing Groucho from You Bet Your Life. I'm doing Groucho from Coconuts. I'm doing Groucho from Day at the Races. In all of these, you know, it's a different, different slices of Groucho at the circus. It's all there. And so it becomes a little hodgepodge. And hopefully it's a satis- becomes a satisfying evening for an audience. Groucho never had a one-man show, except for the, when, at the very end of his life. And he basically read cards at Carnegie Hall when he was 81 years old, 82. But he never stood alone on stage for 90 minutes. He was very dry, very dry, and never worked without his brothers, you know, on stage, except for when he did you know, a few things, Time for Elizabeth. They, he did other things, but I'm talking about in his heyday. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what it'd been like for him to work a crowd. I had to have a congenial streak in a way to bring in the audience. I can't, you know, I, that is something I have to have or no one's going to be there, in my opinion. He had a charisma. He had a charm. But he also, you know, I also do also, I'm out there, I'm brash, I insult people, I do all that. Sometimes, you know, you're always walking that line and I'm always with, with both characters, with the Caesar character, with Groucho, and I've gone both ways. Sometimes I go, I should have leaned in harder or I should have backed off there, that was too much. You can't make, you know, everyone happy all the time. I've well, rather, there are I some like- people that do deserve it because I, I did see you call out a couple of people that were looking at their cell phones while you were performing. And I thought that was incredibly disrespectful no. t- to you. I mean, come on. It's a new age. You know, I'm trying to figure it out, too, how much, you know, because then it all becomes I've done that. And it's like, you know, sometimes that's bombed. It's like I, I, I've also taken people's phones and talked to them. And, you know, I got on the phone and say, uh, you know, you're, I'm, I, it's just, you know, I'm here with your husband. You know, something, you know, and, uh, and he's got a beautiful girlfriend here or something like, you know, something like that. Something <laughs> the audience love. And I'll have a whole, I'll have like a three minute conversation on the phone with it. I'll put it on speakerphone and it becomes part of the act. And uh, I'm not the first to do that, but um, you try to find out ways to address today's audience, the, the you know, the time we're in. Uh, you also learn when to let it go. 
I remember once there was a young girl just like on her phone. And I went too far, I thought, because for all I know, she was Snapchatting. It's a different training today. These are the lessons you learn. Keep your eye on the prize, which is keep the show going. But sometimes you got to call people out if someone walks in or late. And you know, I never stopped looking for opportunities to dig in you know, and shake up the evening. That's what he would have done. That's what he did in life. He had, he was that kind of personality, you know, he could, he can prick at you and, and uh, he did not suffer fools gladly uh, his own, in his own family. Uh, and I was friends with the, his son, Arthur, and his daughter, Miriam. And, you know, you see the, you see the product of that kind of upbringing, which is a lot of positive. And you can also see some of the, uh, see what they were grappling with because he was such a powerful, overwhelming figure. In, at home and, of course, in the world. They shared a lot with me. I have such um, empathy for him and compassion as I get older. I read, I have a, I read all those letters he wrote to his daughter. I have those letters, like 200-something letters, and they're so nuanced. They're so beautiful. He loved her. You, get, you see a whole other side of Groucho. The letters he wrote, you know, the Groucho letters show his wit and his turn of phrase and his silliness and mock indignation. He's great. But he's a complex figure that we will never, how do you really get to know anyone, really? And, and uh, people try, biographers try to, to give you the essence of someone. Everyone has secrets. Everyone has moments that have never been exposed. Groucho did, we all do. And um, that's life. People are complicated. And particularly someone like that. He's a complicated figure that dealt with a lot of, you know, I think um, self-esteem issues early on and jealousy. But he was also a great friend to a lot of young talent. He was a great proponent of so many people, from Jack Lemmon to Woody Allen's, the Dick Cavett's, you name it. There's a whole list of them. And he was a loyal friend, kept friendships for decades. He loved his kids. And in his wife, Ruth, was, was an alcoholic. So he ended up doing a lot of parenting and shopping at times. Both of them, I've been watching interviews with them lately, and they've told me they loved him. They will say, well, yeah, I love my father. I love my father. I think as I got older, there was conflict as they all have their own issues whether it was a career or personal you know it gets more complicated he loved his kids he loved going on vacations with his kids he liked being with them he loved them around he was a homebody he wanted to stay home smoke a pipe listen to gilbert and sullivan or classical music uh, and uh, garden he had trees you know and um, he uh, was a, you know was had multiple subscriptions to magazines he was well informed well read tapped in he loved sports Baseball, particularly, he knew what was going on in the world. He knew what, he knew what was going on in terms of topical events, current events. Uh, he, was, you know, he, was, he had a lot. He had a lot on the ball. I know that there was a musical adaptation of the Marx Brothers all five of them when they were kids called Minnie's Boys. Right. I know that it didn't last long and it wasn't well received, but you could see that Minnie was a hard-driving stage mom towards the Marxes. I think that Groucho may have mentioned many times how hard their mother was on them, but he knew it was out of love to help their situation, to get them out of poverty. And one of the biggest reasons why he was so cold was because when the stock market crashed, he said that's technically, if you count inflation, the richest that he ever was. And even with everything that he made, from the films, from the You Bet Your Life, it still doesn't equate to what he was making before. He was always worried right. about money. He was always worried oh. about security and things like that. And it's pointed on in Groucho Life and Review. Lenny, I told you I'm in no mood. Hey, Julie, I know you've been gambling in the stock market. I thought you might need a loan. 
Yeah, I do. I need a loan very badly. Fifty grand. You're giving all this to me? Sure. You're my friend. I like you. <laughs> Besides, I never gamble in the stock market. I only believe in safe investments. Where'd you get this kind of money? I shot craps last night with Al Capone. Why didn't I think of a safe investment like that? <laughs> Incidentally, Chico's not fooling. He really knows all those characters. Oh, the night Bugsy Siegel was shot, they found Chico's check in his wallet. Lucky thing they shot Bugsy. Chico's check would have bounced and Bugsy would have shot Chico. <laughs> Anyhow, then. I really don't know what to say. You need more? Well, I could always use more. I'll flip you. Double or nothing. Come on. Get out of here. Hey, boss. What's the shape of the world? It's better with a brother like you. Groucho lost a quarter million dollars in 1929, so he could figure out what that was, what that would be today. But there was a lot there. He once said of, he once said of his mother, my mother treated all of us boys equally with contempt. You know, and who knows? And she used to refer to him as the jealous one. She made it clear that she, he was not the favorite. And he, he felt that. Was, you know, and um, you know, that's, the, that's the take on, on his psychology in terms of the relationship with self, with, with, with women. So... But uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, I don't know if Chico ever gave Groucho a dime. By the way, that may be apocryphal, but it makes for good theater. It does. <laughs> it makes for good theater. One of our best lines for the show is "Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story." Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, and, and that's exactly what I think we you know Arthur and Robert Fisher came up with Arthur Marks when they wrote that. It, you know, it's really about a, it's a brother's story. Uh, but Chico did plenty to to buoy their careers, he did, you know, in other ways. You know, he was the fighter, he was the hustler, he was the one that got him into certain spots that benefited their careers. He also caused them a great deal of strife. He once left in the middle of a tour, well, I, think, I think it was Alsatia, was in the 20s, he just took off, just disappeared. Middle of, it's like a Broadway, any, think of a Broadway show touring and one of the lead stars just disappears and no one knows where he is. Come on, is he dead? What's gonna happen? I mean, so there was a lot of, and they, they, they supported him up until the end. As we all know, Chico needed the money. So there you have it. The voicemails of Miriam, those sounded interesting and not only showed her side, especially after her, her father passed, that almost the, like, I almost call her like the rose of it. She was, you know, she got to show her side, which was much softer and everything that you would not expect from a daughter of Groucho and just how talented she was. I was very close to Miriam. I was her trustee when she got older and I helped her toward the end of her life. I was the caretaker in a way. And she had a hard life, but she, uh, she, you know, she drank from the time she was a kid. She sobered up at 50, the year her father died in 1977. You know, she didn't really get to have much of a life up to that point. You know, she was drinking all the time. She was obsessed with her father by her own admission, and she was in love with her dad. She was dealing with her sexuality on top of this all, which she talks about publicly. But she had saved these beautiful letters that he wrote her. You can see his pain in dealing with her decline. You know, I don't think he ever really got to see her recovery. And maybe it was his death that maybe took her to that next step. And she, that she never took another drink and she lived another 40 years after that. 
She lived to be 90. I mean, it's incredible. Although she was, she told me she doesn't remember an entire, the entire decade of the 1960s. But in a way, Bill Marx, her cousin, Harpo's son, referred to her as a hero. She had to learn how to drive again, make coffee again, read again, socialize again. And we had a lot of fun together. You know, she'd spent holidays with me and she'd visit me out of town. She'd go, you know, she'd see me in shows. She stayed with me in my apartment when I lived in Hollywood. And uh, she knew my grandmother and my parents and, and my uncles and aunts. They all loved her. And uh, I'm digressing a bit, but she was a strong person. For someone to recover, it's a miracle. She had a, um, a great group, you know, in her, uh, her support group, a 12-step program. And she was determined to stay healthy. She was a kid. A part of her was stunted in a way from the time she drank. There was, there was a bit of a kind of a teenage quality about her because she went away, was frozen at that point, and then wakes up at age 50. That's what it felt like to me. That was my take on it. My kids loved her. She was special. She was a survivor. You know, she had a sad life in a lot of ways, but she also had joy. She got to spend a good 30 years, 35 years traveling and going on cruises and making friends. And the book was published in 1992. She died in 2017. And she was able to go around and, and talk about uh, her father, her own recovery. And she had a, a beautiful life in that way. But it, came, it was a hard lived life. It was a, a heart. It was a, a lot of pain there, but a lot of joy. And uh, I loved when she had the making her, she had the same kind of wry smiles or dad. I'd see so many uh, similarities, you know, there's in terms of you know, expressions and Arthur was the same way as we all are with our parents. We have certain traits and I experienced that both of them. I loved them both. They were both dear friends and they treated me like a son, both of them. I have to say was fortunate to know them. Did you ever manage to establish a relationship with Melinda Marks by any chance? No, not really. And because she's not around, she's up in Northern California. And uh, I never got to know her really. We've met a couple of times. Um, that's really it. I think she's a very private person. She left the Hollywood scene when she was a teenager and never came back. She's very, very private. People try to interview her and to get stories from her but she's not one to at least at this point share the last thing the only thing i know her to have done was when they released the Mikado that she was in with her father in 1960 on nbc she was a, one of the three little maids i believe and groucho was coco the lord i executioner i think she was interviewed for that piece and she did that i know her daughter jade who is lovely who's come to my shows who i've gotten to have exchanges with she's a really lovely person and kindly Groucho, it's going to be premiering on PBS in April. Where mm -hmm. can people find out more about you and what you're doing and any future tour dates? Thank you for asking. Eveningwithgroucho.com. Not an evening, but just eveningwithgroucho.com. Everything will be on there for the live show, the film version, my touring schedule, but it's eveningwithgroucho.com. Uh, there's also a great website uh, that the company, Groucho Marx Productions, which I'm part of, um, set up called GrouchoMarks.com. And that's really a, a deep dive into Groucho himself. My, in my website, it focuses on my, my work in, in that role. But my other work is also in the touring schedule. So you can see me in Teatro Zanzani by looking there or directing a play at the Wall Street Theater. You can see me there. But yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. Oh, of course. And we'll put the links for it in the description below, definitely, so that people can directly link to your page from this uh, video. The most important question and the final question I need to ask, what is your favorite Marx Brothers film? Oh, for me, it's Duck Soup. Duck Soup is so fast and, and furious. 
He's so wonderfully brutal, and it's I, I love that film. And yet, a night at the opera, I always tear up at the end of that film when I've when I when I've seen it in a law in a big in an old revival house, a big theater of the of the era. That end is just like it's so moving. It's so over the top and lush, and it's, it's a well crafted film. And uh, but for me, I like it when they're at their most anarchic. I love uh, I love horse feathers too. The first film I saw was A Day at the Races, so I have a soft spot for that one because some of the funniest scenes I think that he's ever done are in A Day at the Races. Ain't you blowing a call? You know all those. Oh things. yeah, that's a great one. And uh, he's just great. And the, you know the whole um, the whole uh, exam, the Harpo examination thing when he's like, "I knew it all the time." And he's just crazy fun. And of course, there's scenes from most of the films. Animal Crackers has great Kaufman risk and material that just like you got to be kidding me just so brilliant before the show started i was watching uh, a night in casablanca just as i was working out and just uh, everyone in there looking at me funny as i'm laughing as they're doing the sword fighting bit the whole it's just <laughs> it's a good film i like a night in casablanca i like it you know more than room service or at or at the circus or or a couple of what's a big store i like a night in casablanca yeah i definitely like a night in casablanca more than big store but i'll take them all over love happy any day i'm sorry i try to yeah. watch that and i love harpo and it's not that he can't mm-hmm. carry a film but that that just that it just didn't feel right like the ethos behind it was to help you know chico out of gambling debts but i digress to me it's like anything marks brothers i'm such a fanboy I'll, I'll buy it all i don't care you know the the <laughs> dvd the blu-ray the, the 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 digital version i don't care i'm just that crazy about it there's one thing i want to say though before we end directly to you frank groucho a life in review you signed my copy of the dvd the scene that always gets to me and you know really tugs on my heartstrings is at the end when you're talking, when when you as Groucho are talking about your love for Chico and Harpo, my brothers were the two biggest influential guys in my life. We watched the Marx Brothers all the time. We always kind of said my brother, Anthony, the oldest, you know, he was sort of like the Groucho. Our middle brother, Mikey, who we unfortunately lost six years ago, he was always Chico because he was always getting into trouble. And they always called me Harpo because I was always the zany one, which they're not far off because, you know, Music is Life podcast is a podcast that I get to talk about my love for metal, hardcore movies, theater with friends of mine and have great guests like you on. But the way you spoke about as as Groucho regarding Harpo and Chico, it it got me right here because it reminded me how much I loved my brothers. Do you miss your brothers? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Checo would give you the shirt off his back, which was generally the one he borrowed from you the day before. (laughs) And Harpo. Harpo was a beautiful man. You never hear anyone say anything bad about Harpo. Good night, Harpo. You know, you know, I never told you how proud I was that you were my brother. Guess that's uh, one of the great regrets of my life, that I never told you how much I love you.
Well, my brother, right here at Carnegie Hall, I'm going to tell you that you were a sweet and gentle man, and I love you very much. Good night, Chico. We were quite a pair. Yeah. I'll be seeing you guys. It's the single greatest solo performance of any theater, uh, any production that I've ever seen, whether it was live in person or whether it was on DVD. And I've always wanted to say in person, thank you for that. Appreciate that a lot. I really do. I am. Um, I love doing that monologue at the end. And I got to do it for hundreds of times over a period of since from 1985 to 2006 on and off. Uh, but really concentrated in, you know, maybe 250 shows plus another 150, you know, like 500 performances, top, you know, in the 80s. And I was a young man. And uh, it was very, uh, you know, I was representing. I had, I got to take him on, and I loved him as an old man. There's a line in there that where I'm transitioning from kind of middle-aged Groucho to old Groucho. To, I say, it astounds me that kids, kids that weren't even gleams in their grandparents' eyes, they're laughing at things we did over fifty years ago. It just proves one thing: there's no such thing as an old joke if you've never heard it before. And that was like, to me, I was one of those kids, you know? I, I was, you know, that was in love with him. I was one of those kids that discovered him. I'd never heard the joke before. So here I was as old Groucho in my twenties talking about kids like me. And, uh, but that farewell, I remember doing it at the Pasadena Playhouse <clears throat> just after the New York and London run. That's my hometown. And I did that, I remember glancing down and there was an old man probably in his 80s just crying tears just going down his eye and daubing he's like okay you know when it's underplayed uh, it works well it's like anything you just gotta just say it and underplay it and don't let it be in the words don't cry when you're just say the words because the writing's good and thank you for that i always when i got to that point to me it was an honor to 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 read those words to to play the part and to talk, you know, to speak as Groucho in regard to those brothers. It was profound as a fan. And um, thank you for saying that. You know, to me, that was a very moving part of my uh, career, being able to do that monologue over and over again. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful show in New York and London. You know, the PBS special came around years later, maybe 14, 15 years later. And it's, it's fine. It got cut up quite a bit. It's, you know, like maybe 20 something minutes got cut out. So you're not really experiencing kind of the, the show, the breathing of the show, you know, it's like the show's kind of choppier and because it was set up for a pledge break. That's why I'm so excited about this next show. It's just, just there straight through 90 minutes, but um, you know, it's still, still some a wonderful opportunity was for me to celebrate a hero, which he's a hero to you too. So thank you for that. Hey, Mr. Frank Ferrante, James and I thank you for being on the podcast tonight. It was a real honor and a privilege 
And, uh, you know, we wish you all the best, uh, not just the role of Groucho, but the role of Caesar and everything else you do in the future. And we hope you would consider this as an open invitation to come back anytime to promote anything you're doing. Well, I'd come on just to talk to you guys. So thank you for that. Appreciate it. We'll take Hail it. Fredonia. Hail Fredonia. <laughs> Hail Fredonia. <laughs> To find out more about the Music Is Live podcast, check us out over at musicislivepodcast.com. Also, you can check out the parent network, Ratsaw Review, over at ratsawreview.com. For James Lilliquist, this is Lou Mavs. Once again, Mr. Frank Ferrante, thank you for coming on the Music Is Live podcast tonight. And remember, all art is valid. Cheers. I'll stay a week or two. I'll stay the summer through, but I am telling you, I must be. Anchor.fm and Ratsaw Review. Check out the other shows on Ratsaw Review, including Beyond Bushido, Old Man Metals Musings, The Right Opinion, The Vieira Vault, The Timo Toki Podcast, The BS Sessions with Mark and Jerry, Just the Cheese Please, and The Friday Night Party with the great Harry Barnett and Evie. Graphics by Rocky Baia. For commissions, find them on Twitter at R-O-C-K-Y-B-A-I-A. Intro and outro music for the show is Lose Control by The Rebel Medium, written by Jacqueline Guitard, Ernest Leuk, and Lou Mavs. If you'd like to donate to the channel, please donate to our PayPal at musicislivepodcast at gmail.com. If you're in a band and you want us to review your music, then contact us at Mavs at musicislivepodcast.com. Special thanks to Wayne Noon and Greg Noggle. With much love and gratitude to Aaron, Anna, and Aloysius. For more information, check out www.musicislivepodcast.com. And don't forget to check out www.ratsareview.com. Remember, all art is valid. Thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>